Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. We've arrived at our next installment in our Make Disciples podcast series, where we are covering what a disciple is, who we are in Christ, and what are the characteristics of a follower of our King. Today, we are discussing the characteristic that disciples prepare. To sufficiently cover it, we have Michael, our resident ephesiologist. I'm Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. And we went to that Australian well again and are joined by Bree Mills. Bree is an ordained Anglican minister and a doctoral student in the area of missional leadership. She's focusing on innovative leadership in the Australian context. She is presently ministering with her husband in the microchurch area in Melbourne. They are there with their kids. They are having fun. They are doing life. Bree, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, mate. It's great to be chatting. Okay, so Bree, as I try to make sure to ask all of our guests, I can describe bits and pieces of what you are doing, but I would love for you to share with us what are some important things that you would love for people to know about you and what you do? Yeah, I think um, one of the things I'm really passionate about is how we develop leaders. So that's my doctoral thesis, how we develop innovative leaders for the Australian context. Um, But I'm particularly passionate about doing that with women and women in church planting. Um, So that's been something that God's been really just um, stirring in me a lot recently. Um, So that's that's a big part of what I'm doing in Australia. And it's also because so many of the the micro church and simple church leaders that we're seeing come to the forefront, both in Australia and in New Zealand, are women. Um, And so that's really, for me, that's really grown a fire for actually how do we develop and prepare these people for what God's calling them into. Wow. Wow, that is cool. Well, we're grateful that you're joining us, Bree, and, and I think you're the perfect person among, I'm sure there are others that we might say that are perfect, but you're yep. a perfect person to come and uh, interact with us on this topic of what does it mean that disciples prepare? So uh, t- we'd love to hear from you. You're into leadership development. You've been doing this for some time. You did your master's work in missional leadership, and now your doctoral work. What comes to mind when you think about the preparation of disciples? Yeah, oh my gosh, so many different things. Um, I think for me, the the biggest part for me is that it's got to be a holistic process. Mm. So often in our churches, we disconnect um, discipleship or leadership development from the rest of our lives, like there's a spiritual box that we can put it in. Um, and especially um, when you're when you're raising women and you're discipling women, um, there is less boundaries between our lives, especially if you're raising kids and, and doing other things like that. So really discipleship has to have that real holistic, all of life focus. Um, and so for me, that's a, that's a really big part of um, just reframing and rethinking even the pedagogical approach to discipleship in this space is how does it embrace that that holistic all of life, um, which I think in our churches today, uh, certainly in Australia, we've kind of disconnected and we have these courses and we'll run people through, you know, discipleship 101, 201, 301, um, but it's so disconnected from the rest of their life and it's not relational and it's it's just not engaging the whole person. 
Um, so often they fall flat and, and you just see very, very little fruit coming out of those sort of processes. So for me, it's it's that real relational process. It's the the life on life of actually walking alongside people as well as the typical content and other things that need to be in there, but doing that in a really holistic way that embraces the whole person and I guess the whole process of formation, not just formation of what they're thinking or how they're acting, but how they're feeling and and the spaces they're, they're inhabiting because I think that shapes them as well. So all of those sort of pieces are really, I think, key in that sort of formational space. Okay, so as I'm processing what you are saying, Bree, it hits me that there might be others who are listening saying, well, yeah, I mean, we would love for people to have, you know, that perfect blend of not just the head, but the heart and the life and uh, that holistic discipleship. And the emotion. I mean, that's something that we don't hear much about, to be honest. You know, when I think of preparing disciples, I, I think like a man. Uh, really good. Know, well, I mean, yeah, and, and I, should, I should listen your to role. my wife more, but um, but I'm thinking of identity of that being how we behave, what we believe, you know, who we belong to. But but uh, rarely would I think of emotion as a part yeah. of that, and I I love that. Yeah, and I think we're discipling the next generation. Um, I don't know what it's like in the US. In Australia, our young adult culture is very much based on doing what they feel like doing. Mm. And so if somebody is only getting just, you know, they're only reading their Bible when they feel like it, or they're only, you know, following Jesus when it's, you know, when they feel led to, like there's this whole emphasis in emotions in this next generation that actually sometimes we have to help people to understand that their emotions are not always in like, godly emotions and that they actually need to use other capacities to to kind of check on those and then to process those. Hmm. So, okay. So how, right? Like how do you go about doing some of these things so that it doesn't feel like pie in the sky? It doesn't just seem idealistic. I may have been accused of being idealistic a time or 12 in my life. So how do you do these things where you're going to disciple on a holistic manner such that the logical and the emotional and um, the the way that it bears out and how we live, how do, how do you cover all of that? Yeah, I think that it, it needs to be done in community. So this is like mm. so often we take discipleship down to a one-on-one process. And Jesus did it with 12 or three, depending on you know which emphasis you want to go for. But I actually think you need to be in those sort of spaces of community in part because you can get discipled by one person and they can be like you and they can be someone who, you know, ticks all your boxes or aligns with you thought-wise. And so there's not a lot of rub. Whereas when you're in a group and there's three or four different people, there's going to be people different to you who make you react in different ways which is actually going to help sharpen you and mould you more to be more like Jesus. Because if you're only being discipled in a context where it's comfortable and you know each other and um, I, I guess you're similar like personalities, you, yeah. you know, you know, an apostle, uh, you know, thinking of the apest kind of idea, the fivefold ministry, if an apostle's discipling an apostle, that's great. But actually an apostle needs to learn what it looks like to rub up against a pastor because mm-hmm. the apostle needs that pastoral edge. And the pastor needs that apostolic kind of movement as well. And so you, I actually think for me, we we are big about doing it in group context in Australia. So whether that's within your microchurch, 
we we run some other small group kind of discipleship methods around what we call discipleship groups, but they're like group coaching around kind of six to eight people who gather specifically for the purpose of discipling one another. Some of them are peer-led depending on where, what age and stage they're at. Some of them are actually have a key leader who's got some some key thoughts to run through. But those spaces are really important. And even within those spaces, to be able to have these sort of conversations is developing that deep trust and psychological safety and all those sort of things that you need to be able to have real and open and honest conversations about what's driving you and how you're going in that sort of discipleship journey. Mm. Well, the community aspect, of course, is something that we're always talking about in terms of doing uh, theology and community, but thinking in terms of doing discipleship and community is is uh, a wonderful thing. What what do you do? I mean, this just struck me because I was in a conversation not too long ago uh, with someone who's doing discipleship and community, and they were sharing about one person in the group being so dominant in the group. How how do you navigate those kinds of things, Bree? Yeah, yeah, with good leadership, um, right? <laughs> good group, good group dynamics, and good leadership. Um, I think some of the methodologies that we tend to use ensure that people aren't dominant. So one of the things that we do is we start by actually getting everyone to go around the circle and say, "What's God been saying to you since we last met?" And so everyone gives a little bit of a headline of where they're at or what God's been speaking into their lives. And to a degree, it means that no one can then hijack the room for 30 minutes. It's literally supposed to be one or two sentences. But then we hear from everyone and often you'll see there's a theme going on between different people. And so then we'll press into that particular theme, start to talk about it, look at scripture, look at other things that can inform the particular challenge or discipleship issue that's going on in that sort of space. So I guess some of the ways you set things up can make sure that everybody has a voice, but a lot of it has to do with actually how do you lead in that space? Mm-hmm. When yeah, you come that. into those spaces as a leader, again, like you're saying, how do you do it? Well, you have to lead well. Um, <laughs> make sure it's not your first rodeo. Uh, the Says the guy from Houston, Texas. Hey, I, I own I own the gear that I can confidently say, and I grew up next to cornfields. Um, but I'm a city boy. Um, the the question that I was trying to get to, Michael, um, how do Bree? How prepared? Right, like, are you? Are do you have like a list in the back of your mind? Like, okay, if if this thing comes up, I know I can go to these passages of scripture. If this sort of thing comes up, I know I should go here. Is there like a, a library of things that you are resourced with and that you are resourcing future leaders? Uh, is this more born out of I've done this a time or two and this is what I've learned? Like, how do how do you gauge that? Yeah, both basically. Okay. And um, so we actually built something we called the DNA of discipleship for our network of microchurches um, years ago when we started. And it was really, these are the key ideas that we think every disciple in our context needs to know. So specific to our context, where we're leading people, what we think the key issues that they're going to come up against are, um, just some of the basic principles of discipleship. But we literally have like a, a DNA of discipleship, which is like we used to call it our toolkit. And so that's in the back of our minds. That's certainly what we, in terms of content-wise, that's what we teach through in these spaces. But we we do a bit of content one week and then the next couple of weeks there wouldn't be any content. We'd actually just be working that through in people's lives. It's like, how'd you go practicing that? Come back, tell us the stories. Mm-hmm. Where are you struggling? Let's work through that. So it's not um, 
knowledge-based discipleship, it's obedience-based discipleship. So it's really seeking to move from what do you know about Jesus to actually how are you living it out in that space. And so the content's really just a, a prompt or a, hey, here's a key tool, here's a key principle, a key theological idea. Now let's actually embed that in your life and and work through that. And we try not to push to the next key idea until we actually started to see people picking it up and, in, and embedding it into their life, whether we see that through our discipleship group or through their microchurches or missional communities they're a part of, actually seeing them to actually take hold of it and understand it and really live it out. It sounds like inherent in that is what well, you just said, it living it out. Uh, that it's mm. not just something that they're taking in, taking in, but they're living it out in their communities. And it, it sounds like that that is even, or at least the encouragement is to go beyond your community to live that out in uh, in your neighborhoods and schools, grocery stores, wh- wherever you are. Yeah, that's exactly right. So most of the leaders who are in these discipleship groups are leading some expressions of church in their local community, um, which has usually has quite a clear missional purpose or direction. And so it is actually about taking it from that discipleship context and embedding it in their in their mission and um, in their discipleship for other people, whatever that looks like in their context. Um, so, yeah, and, and the nice thing is we tend to have more than one person from each microchurch in their discipleship group. So they go out from that space into their mission context with a couple of them together who can keep each other accountable, who can help one another. So it's not that sense of, okay, now you go on your own and do this. Um, but you actually get to go with someone else and really keep practicing this in the day-to-day in the life-on-life relationships. Mm. Okay, so I'm thinking obedience-based discipleship, especially when there is an assumption that there is an, a, an internal change, right? Like, like the Lord has worked on your heart and the result of that transfer, that internal transformation has led to an external action. How do you, in your context or with your leaders, how do you help prevent um, a tend or a bent towards moralism where the the obedience steps aren't just being boxes to check so we can move on to that next thing and say we're doing it? Yeah, I think through relationships, through real deep relationships with the people that you're discipling. if it, if it was a program, they could just turn up and tick the box and move on. Um, but I think if you're in real relationships, and I mean, you know, deep multiple contacts throughout the week kind of relationships with the people that you're discipling, then it's really hard to just make it a, a, a an absent from the rest of your body box ticked because it shows. Um, you can only fool so many people young. for so long. Yeah. That's right. You might be able to fool someone for a couple of hours a week or a fortnight at a discipleship group, but if you're touching base five or six times over that fortnight um, in different formats, in different contexts, like you can you can see it. I mean, our culture and particularly my generation, we're good at sniffing out the kind of lack of authenticity or frauds, and I um, am known and probably unapologetic about going after that where I see that because I actually don't want I want people to have such a love for Jesus and such a heart that that all of this stuff we're talking about is kind of comes and overflows from that. And often when we start to see that hint of I'm just doing the things I should be doing, it's actually because there's something going on personally with them and Jesus where there's a disconnect or there's something they're struggling through. And I'll like 
I'll unapologetically kind of dig in and go for that to the point some of my leaders were like, oh, you're not going there today. I'm like, no, I might. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, are you worried? Because Because I I I am now. Yeah, because I want them to be in love with Jesus. Like for me, that is the most important thing. If they are in love with Jesus, all of this will just Mm. flow. Like we talk with a lot of people who want to plant microchurches and missional communities and and they start with the idea that they want to plant something rather than they're so in love with Jesus that they're just reaching out and loving their neighbourhood and then the kind of church and disciples arise from that action. Like it just happens. That's that's what I want to cultivate in people rather than – yeah, that, I don't know, desire to plant or build or just do things for the sake of it. Um, yeah. So my, one of my one of my hearts and passions is around that real spiritual formation area, the kind of missional spirituality stuff, um, because I really think that there is, um, there is a massive connect there that we've sometimes disconnected. Mm. Like everything that we do in mission should be an overflow of what God's leading us towards and um, just shaping in us. Yeah, an overflow of us b- being so in yeah. him that it just comes yeah. out. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So when you encounter some leaders who are who have that build <laughs> and mentality yeah. and they show up, what what are some of the first things that you do to help encourage them or help drive them into that passionate life-changing love of Jesus? Yeah, I I mean I'm I'm a big one for old school spiritual practices. So I'm I take leaders on retreat days. Um, I teach a lot of innovative kind of doer leaders stuff around silence and solitude because for me innovation is responding to um, the invitation of God to do something in His kingdom in a new way. So innovation doesn't come from who we are; it comes from who God is and His invitation to us. So if we're not listening and able to hear what He's inviting us into then we're not going to step into those spaces of creativity and innovation in his kingdom. So for me, the most important thing for a leader is that they they have a high awareness of God, and this is part of my thesis research, mm. that they're actually able to be aware of what God's doing in and around them and what he's, how he's asking them to participate in what he's already doing. Um, because once they've got oh. that, the rest is just skills that can be taught. Yeah, wow. I love that. Well, um, okay. So many thoughts going through the head at the moment. You've been involved in seminary for a number of years. You've done your master's. You're working on your doctorate. Talk to us a little bit about the place of theological education in preparing disciples. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. It's changing. Um, (laughs) it's a place of, it's a place of challenge in Australia because, um, I don't know if, if theological education is really caught up to, um, what God is doing in our world at the moment. I think it's really important. Like I'm a big proponent of having deep theological education, being able to do good theological reflection. I think one of the key things we've got to be, if we're going to be missionaries is we've got to be able to reflect theologically on our context, on on all sorts of things in that sort of space. And there's skills that I don't think we learn generally in other ways. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of theological education, but I, I think some of our methodologies might be challenged and might need to be challenged over the next season. So part of my doctorate is looking at how do we develop innovative missional leaders for the Australian context. And part of what I'm hoping will come out of that is actually some 
some new thinking that might help and reshape um, the way that we go back to theological education, particularly for these sort of apostolic pioneer leaders who otherwise tend to struggle to find a place in a standard seminary process. Mm. So, so what are you finding there? What, what, what are your preliminary recommendations or uh, the insights into theological education? Don't spoil your team, but please tell us all the end of it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so I've looked at, um, I've done the, the spiritual assessment inventory, I've done some personality stuff, and then I've done life mapping interviews with 10 of the most innovative missional leaders that I could find in the Australian context, really to, I guess, deconstruct how God has formed them in the way that that might help us understand, well, how does God form others? Mm. And and the truth is formation is is lifelong and key moments of formation start from people's family of origin. Um, so, so many of the innovative leaders that I'm looking at had parents who were entrepreneurial or innovative in some way, whether that was inside the mm. church or outside the church. So many of them had a, um, what I'd call a church of origin. So their first major church they were part of that had that kind of um, missional or innovative edge. Um, it's certainly a part of gifting and that sort of space. So in a lot of these uh, leaders, they pretty much come up mostly AP, so high apostle, high prophet across both, um, probably because they're more innovative leaders than your standard church planters. The prophetic edge is a bit higher in some of these leaders. But there's a mixture of gifting, there's a mixture of calling, there's a mixture of personality. Um, all of these sort of factors, family of origin, church of origin, all have a role to play in formation, as does theological education. And for people that falls at different places, but but basically the the key idea is really that um, theological education needs to do more work to help people in spiritual formation, so the ability to increase their awareness of God, their understanding of God, to help them deal with disappointment of God. So mm. one of the things that we noticed in these leaders is using something called their spiritual assessment imagery, they have a really high awareness of God. So they're really good at knowing what God's up to or getting a sense of what God's calling them into and stepping into that. And they also have a really, um, well, they have a, let me reverse it. They have really low disappointment of God. So when something happens that they're disappointed in or something um, doesn't go the way they think, they don't blame God for it because they could see, I guess they have a healthy, well-grounded hmm. um, relationship with Jesus that really holds them. And it also that well-grounded relationship with Jesus is what enables them to step out and to take risks and to try new things and not let that knock them down. So these are leaders that I've interviewed who have been ministering for, well, they range in age, but at least 10 years, some of them as much as 30 years. Um, and the thing that keeps them there is this really well-grounded, deep, mature relationship with God, even in the younger ones that I, I message. And I think most of them said that theological education didn't play a lot of a role in that, and I think it could. Mm. Like I think we could be far more intentional with the spiritual formation that goes alongside the theological information to actually bring that kind of um, connection back together in that space. And, and where do you see that intersection? What, mm -hmm. what would what would we be looking at? Do you think in yeah, terms so, of how it looks, what the content yeah. is? Yeah. Well, I think even small things like having people in intentional cohorts where they're actually doing life together, where there is a yeah. sense of coaching and discipleship that's being invested into that apart from the teaching and the theological information. 
or even better if it was the same people who were doing both and actually integrating those two. Right. But but certainly having, I mean, one of my dreams is how amazing would it be if everybody who was going through theological education had a spiritual director or had a coach or someone who is intentionally discipling them, not just for what's going on in their life and ministry outside of their theological education, but actually doing so to intentionally help them to take what they're learning academically and embed it in their personal life. And I think that can be done in a one-to-one. That can be done in the same sort of peer group thing that I lead at the moment in discipleship groups. But something in those sort of cohorts, journeying together, I don't know um, what seminaries are like, in the States, but in Australia, there's a lot of part-time students. Uh, there's a lot of off-campus people that the ability to have a cohort is is probably really slim um, at the moment because people are, are coming at it from very different ways in very different places, and they're basically tapping in, getting the information, completing the assignments, and then tapping out. Um, I think there's not that I'd want to go back to the old live-in seminary where you had to go live right. on campus for three years, but I think there were some formation elements that we've lost now that that's not the typical process for people as they step into seminary. So how do we put in those formation elements in a way that uh, is not restrictive of location and other things like that? And I think you can do that through even just online cohorts um, mm. and that sort of intentional space being made. You you were highlighting and you have highlighted, right? Like if we would hit reverse on the podcast, I think we will probably hear you say an increased amount of relationship or life on life um, it, it's been hit quite a few times. So it's no surprise then what does it look like to actually have some of that, that higher relational friction in a healthy way that is going to be the thing that helps us grow in a spiritual capacity. Um, in, in that spiritual leadership has to be done through a relational context. However, when we all ourselves included, have created opportunity for us to spread out on an international basis, the type of education, then we we're, we're substituting one good thing, but we're taking something mm. off the table as well. Um, mm. Which is that ability to be, because you know, if, if I was in a cohort with you right now, that would not be life on life. Australia or Melbourne and Houston are not next door. We are not going to run into each yeah. other at the supermarket. Um, there is yeah. not really going to be an opportunity for our families to hang out. It's going to be a very mm-hmm. scheduled thing. And like you said, you know, certainly you can fool somebody for a few meetings here and there, but you know, that, that person to person interaction in a cohort within a community has such a high value that has such yeah. a high value. Yeah. And if we were able to, figure out, I guess, learn from the benefits of the past. Hey, there were these good things that happened when the seminaries were in a locale and everybody lived together and on the campus that is, and they had opportunities to interact. We were able to take aspects of that as well as this high relational, um, somebody really paying attention to your life. How could we, what could we do? What could we do if we were able to make some of those changes? Yeah. I think I'm I mean, we out. just, I don't know. Well, yeah, and look, I think physical locatedness n- near each other is is hard to beat, but I recently ran a, a cohort for women in church planting and they're from all over Australia, so there's no crossover, but we met every week for two hours and talked 
um, intentionally using the Beatitudes and a course by um, Danielle Strickland called The Creative Way Down about our own walk with Jesus, our own um, kind of life and discipleship. And there was like eight or nine women in this cohort online that we ran, and I would consider them all now dear friends, and and Mm. we had some incredible deep sharing in that space. And so I think it's possible to do it in the online space, but it's got to be it's it's got to be content that drives you deeper and it's got to be people in the room who are committed to actually go and engage in that process. And for maybe for some of the people in our seminaries, that's going to be part of the challenge is actually are they are they willing and they open to engage in that depth of discipleship? And we find in Australia there are some that kind of come along and say, oh, we'd like to plant microgestion. We start talking about discipleship. And that, that actually they're not interested in, or even some who will turn up to a micro church because it's the cool new thing that's going on around Australia. But then they realize that in a micro church, there's no place to hide. Mm. Like people can see your discipleship journey. You can't sit in the back row and have no one notice. And mm-hmm. that's really threatening to a lot of people. Right. Um, that's kind of deep. Actually, you want to get to know me and how I'm going with Jesus. I'm not so sure about that. Like that's that's a real challenge, I think, in just Western culture generally. I think what is so fascinating listening to how you were talking about this further up and further in with Jesus, right? Driving into him and knowing him and being changed by him and how we think, feel, and act like Jesus. Uh, it really is built on the fact that disciples prepare. Like this, yeah. we have to actually put time and effort and heart behind it. We are not going to slip trip and fall our way into Christ likeness it's, it's it has not to be an, an intentional accident. process yes. yeah that's right yeah and I think a lot of our churches even some of our micro churches are not intentional about their processes of disciple making they're intentional about going out on mission they're intentional about what their gatherings look like mm. but they don't actually have an intentional process or way that they're thinking through how they're making disciples in that community I think that's one of the really key things that differentiates the communities that we see that are the seeing disciples make disciples and those that are not is actually what's their level of intentionality about this? How are they going after it? Um, and what what relational spaces and environments have they set up to make this a part of their intentional process together as a community? And that's really key, isn't it? The relational part. I wonder how challenged we are because to be in relationships is somewhat organic, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. we're, you don't go into relationships with a list of things that you want to do every time you meet together. It's kind of you're there with each other. You're uh, listening, learning, loving uh, in, in community. And, and there's a very organic element to those relationships that kind of rub against the mm-hmm. systems that we create mm-hmm. that are more mm-hmm. structured and and so yeah. on that we ultimately feel more comfortable with for whatever reason. Yeah. yeah. I know and the reason. And there's so many times. Okay. <laughs> well, the reason is, so- is it's uncomfortable, right? Like, yeah. like the systems that we have set up have allowed us to disappear, to show up when we mm. want to show up and to bounce when we don't want to. Yeah. And I don't know if anybody would actually see that, like say that, right? Like, oh no, I like showing up here because I have no accountability. That's why I show up. Nobody would say yeah. that. But I think undergirding that might that might be true that mm. might be true Drew, Bree, i cut you off what were you thinking when when michael proclaimed that 
I was just saying that so many times in our discipleship spaces and the environments that we set up, we might be saying, hey, we're going to get on about some content tonight and somebody shows up and we say what God's been saying to all of us and we're like, nope, we're not. We're going to actually talk about this and what's going on in your life because we can't go on and talk about actually you know, identifying people of peace or whatever it might be that we're looking at because you're having a really tough time and actually two or three other people in the group are having a similar mm-hmm. struggle and that's where Jesus is at the moment. So we actually need to stop and be, and that means that, you know, whatever systems or we don't really have systems, but, you know, whatever I, ideals we had yeah. about that space need to go because discipleship at that moment means responding mm-hmm. to actually what Jesus is calling them to in that space, which annoys some of the people in our groups who'd love to get on and get everything finished. Don't look at me like that. Um, okay. Brie, I have one final question, unless Michael one-ups me with another final question. Uh, you have highlighted the necessity of having an intentional plan. Uh, if there are people who are listening to this podcast and they've been toying with the idea of a greater intentionality and they've taken, Mm -hmm. they've taken your word, um, what advice do you have to them as they are now going to get pushback? from the people who see this intentional plan and say, Hey, can't we go back to the way where we just kind of were, where we're just kind of floating along and talking about Jesus. And isn't that enough? What advice do you have for them? Uh, Start small and start with the people that are interested and on board, Mm. you know, start, if you've only got one or two people, three people, maybe that you can that actually want to do this journey, want to go deep, want to, take life on life discipleship, start there and invest deeply with them. Because what I've seen over the years is as people have grown as disciples and they've started to really see some fruit and some life change, then some of the others around the edges who, who let's be honest, they're watching, especially if you're in a church community and you see some growth and a couple of people really starting to not only step up into things that they're doing, but into that sense of just the, the sureness of their own faith and and their confidence in God's faithfulness. And you see that change in people. And I think there are a lot of people longing for that change, but not necessarily wanting to do the work. So start with those who want to do the work, who want to do the journey, who want to do life on life and just invest deeply. Like we, we talk about investing with your three. So who are the three people that you sense God's calling you to invest in, disciple? Um, some of those might be people who are not yet believers. Some of them might be those who are people of faith, but just invest deeply with those three. I mean, Jesus spent three years with 12 people predominantly. So don't don't go too too wide. Don't try and preach it from the front and get everybody on board. Take two or three, take five or six if you've got them, and just pour your life into those people and see what happens. Because if mm. they then do the same, then you've suddenly five or six people then go disciple five or six other people, then very quickly you're discipling 30 or 40 people but you're doing it well and you're doing it deeply. So start small and and just, yeah, be unapologetic about, about going deep together. I love that. And what, what would the time frame? What obviously we, we, I just told, talked about loving that checklist, right? We have, we have these things that we got to cover. Um, but if somebody is going to get into this and they are going to want to pour their life into three other, one other, two other, three others, um, what might be a good expectation before you kind of say, okay, now let's start thinking about taking on some others. You all like generally, again, I understand this is almost an impossible thing to measure. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it depends, right? Should, if I'm discipling someone for six months, my hope would be that they're starting to read the Bible with someone else 
in that six months, someone who's not a believer or, you know, some basics, first steps. But in terms of, you know, our discipleship groups, if I'm leading a group like that, I would expect that it would be at least a year before anyone in that group led someone else, probably two, to be totally honest. Um, so investing with people for at least a couple of years before they've got enough of the DNA and the understanding. I find that people do one year with you and they get an understanding of the space and the process and they think they can run with it. But the second year is actually where you see a lot more, I think, depth of growth beyond seeing the structure and the process that we use to getting the heart behind it and really picking up the DNA that that is really driving this life-on-life discipleship. So, yeah, for them to actually be doing exactly what I would be doing, I would say at least two years. Yeah, so, which is slow. Which And this is the beauty of it, right? Like you hear the front end and it was like, hey, if you get one person and then the two of you spread and then it's now two more people and then it's two more people and you, you see the exponential growth and you get really excited about it. But then you've got Brie over here with the big thing of cold water and she throws that bucket on Sorry. and said, also, it's going to be two years before yeah. that first replication occurs. And, uh, and if they, yeah, it's, it's, but here's the reality. There's a reason I asked you because I, there is both excitement and realistic expectations. They need to be mm-hmm. combined, right? So um, maybe we should say disciples prepare, but um, disciples are patient. And that's going to also yeah. have to be, <laughs> we yeah. I have a 12 characteristic, Michael, for version um, 2.0 when you write it later. Yeah. Um yeah. Like we have to be patient in what God's doing. Yeah. And there's a balance, isn't there? I mean, uh, the the Lord could be working on people in unique ways that we're just not aware of. And he might have somebody in mind to do something. And we just need to be aware of what the Lord is doing and and Mm. how he might use us to help someone else along. And that might be two years from now. It, It might be two months from now. Yeah, and you don't discipleship you don't disciple people in a vacuum, right? Yeah. So some people have a lot of this DNA already, um, or they they're a certain way with their, their relationship with Jesus. Some people you can release really quickly mm. into this sort of space because of what God has already been doing in their life before they ever met me. Um and even people who are just come to new to faith who are starting to do this, they can start discipling others, For but sure. discipling them kind of where they've been. So, you know, they're up to this point in really starting to go deep with Jesus. They can still be starting to read the Bible and disciple others. And I would actually, that would be part of my expectation is that they were doing some of that process with others. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they do nothing Mm -hmm. for two years and then you release them. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. throughout that process, they should be starting to do the things that you've been teaching them to do in their context as you go. My goodness, I am so excited. Bree. Thank you for being on our podcast. I think I'm going to be um, racing off from here just with my brain on fire and the different ways and the people that I can be more intentional with and, and pouring into them. If other people who have listened to this podcast are just as excited as I have been, um, where can they follow up with you? Where, they, where can they uh, connect with the work that God is doing in and through you? Yeah, so micromovements.com.au is the main uh, website you can contact me through or I've got a, a Brie Mills one as well, but e- either of those spaces and you'll find me and uh, feel free to reach out and connect. Okay. Micromovements.com? Dot .au. Dot .au. You got yeah. to think like an Aussie, Michael. You got to think, think like, like an Aussie. Aussie. Indeed. Well, Bree, thank you very much for joining us. It has been a blessing. 
And we also want to make sure to thank you, the listener, for dedicating your time to joining us on our Make Disciples podcast series. If this was the first podcast in the series that you've jumped into, please check out the ones that came before it. And also check out the rest of our catalog from the Ephesiology podcast. You can just scroll back and find it there on your podcast feed. Lastly, I do want to encourage you, go over to masterclasses.ephesiology.com to check out the other resources that we have available to you there. I am sure it'll be a benefit and a blessing to you. So for Michael, Bree, and myself, thanks for doing theology in community with us today on the Ephesiology Podcast.